Welcome to My Life, Chesedah Supplied, episode 352. This program is dedicated in loving honor and memory of Yecheveh Tova Gerari. Today was Yud Gimel Iyer, the 69th yard site of the Rebbe's youngest brother, Rabbi Yisrael Arieleib. Tomorrow will be Yudalad, and then comes Tezvavir, Pesach Sheni, and later in the week, Friday, is Lagba Emer. And this entire week, concluding on Shabbos, is Shabbos Pasha Emer. So we have quite a few topics to talk about applying chassidus to these significant days. And we'll begin, which is Karav B'Yeser, Yud Gimel Ir. So 69 years ago, in England, the Rebbe's youngest brother, Rabbi Yisrael Arieleib, the Rebbe had another brother, Abdev Ber. Yisrael Arieleib passed away. And stories about him have already become legend in many ways. The mysteries of his life, the fact how the Rebbe literally would send notes to his mother with a signature of his brother that she shouldn't officially know that he had passed away. And we've talked about this in previous years, and I'll give you cross-references. So I don't want to cover everything again from the beginning. In episodes 115, 161, and 210. You go to you can find those episodes. But I, some questions did come in. One is, the Rebbe's brother, did the Rebbe start the whole Balchuva effort as a tikkun for his brother? Someone writes. Another person writes, why did his brother leave Chabad? So this is exactly the way the letters are written. I don't censor them. And uh, so... Let me respond to both of them in the same vein. We know that Rebbe's brother went through his own challenges. But as I always point out, we don't know what a person goes through until you know them from the within. And in general, we don't judge or try to analyze people, especially someone cut of the Beis Arav or someone from Beis Arav, the Rebbe's brother. And, uh, and especially, we want to avoid sensationalism. If you want to learn a lesson from his life, the Rebbe spoke a number of sikhs throughout the years, Lessons we learn from his life, from his name. I want to read with you a reshima uh, of something that Rebbe said right after he stood up from Shiva in that year, Tavshin Yud Beis, on Yutes Ir, which was at the end of Shiva of, uh, for his brother. So this is not, especially not in the context of Chassidus Applied, to discuss and speculate a person's situation and so on. Well, he left Chabad. Uh, can one leave Chabad? He was a, a thorough Chabad chassid from birth, from family, and I'm sure he never left Chabad, and if he was asked that question, he'd probably say the same. The question is, what suda, what shape and form it took? I also am not a believer in whitewashing and trying to make believe that someone was someone else than people would like, you know, it's not good for reputation or for image. So we know that certain things externally seem to be not the way we would think a mainstream Chabad chassid would look or behave. But again, the focus here is not on it's so easy to fall into the sensationalistic aspect of it, but more to the lessons learned. So I think appropriate would be is to actually look at quickly, and I'll tell you where this is printed, in Lukut HaSichas Chelek Lamed Dalad. Chapter, uh, volume 34, page 363, there's a Rishimah, from the Rebbe speaking 
after the Shiva of his brother. A, a piece of it, a part of it is also uh, printed in volume three of the Kutis page 976 in footnote 19. But when you read this, this to me is a document that the Rebbe said and, and edited and wrote in, in context of his uh, brother's uh, life and brother's yard site. So something we can learn from. Briefly, the Rebbe speaks about how the whole Bria, the whole creation, is The way God created the world, the world is created, everything goes from top down, from higher levels of the divine to lower levels of the divine. And the Kavona, And the objective and the intention is there should be an Aliyah, an elevation, after an elevation from the bottom up. And since this is the Kavona, that's how it also became Bepoyal Mamish. And there's long footnotes here, which would take a long time to study in depth, but worthwhile reading, where the Rebbe talks about the details of how something happens, how a person goes down both collectively and individually. And then he continues. And from the time where the descent happens, then begins the aliyah, the elevation after the elevation. But in a revealed way, you see this in the Shamas and Ganeidin. In other words, you don't always see the Aliyah in a person's lifetime. And by Tzadikim also in this world. Okay. So you see he's discussing, and you can understand from between the lines, that he's talking about every person's journey the general journey of a person's neshama coming down, and then their elevation. Then he says that even though throughout history, and I'll just read very briefly, there's ups and downs. The Pasuk says, Sheva Yipol Tzadik V'kom, that if there's ever a fall, a person descends for whatever reason from their level where they should be, it's in order that they should rise afterwards and and it's necessary for them to be able to climb to a higher place that they have that there be a fill, a fall and a descent. As Chassidus explains in a number of places, that between two levels you always need to have a void or a fall, a transition in between. Okay. So the rest of it that Rebbe speaks about, since this Yerida is necessary, so the truth is, it's part of the Aliyah. So even when there is a descent, it's also part of going to a higher place. And it's, Then the Rebbe concludes that the same thing is when you talk about Petira and Avelis, when someone passes away, so on one hand, it's a descent. It's both for the person who passed and for the people who are availing the mourners and the grievers. But the purpose of it is in order to bring a higher aliyah. And he goes on to speak about the Lasha and the Chama. But I wanted to focus on this point. 
that the, the descent is part of the elevation. And the Rebbe says, it's not just something, the, the, at the end of the piece he writes, the Rebbe says, person needs hard work to come to that elevation. You should feel that even when there's a descent, it's really part of a higher elevation. Not just to believe and understand, but to feel it. And that has to be the intention of the Menachmim, the people who are consoling the, the, the Oval, to help them bring, come to that type of state with such strength. Now, there's one footnote which I want to really focus on, where he says, that even though the person is given pchira to choose whether they should, how they should behave, nevertheless, that's only, the Rebbe says, but doesn't change the sachakal of the general bria in general, which is always going to go toward an aliyah, because that's the kavana. And the Rebbe continues, even an individual person, this kavana is fulfilled, And the pechir of the person just determines how quickly that aliyah will happen. And also, if it will be in a way that gave some space for the umazeh, in other words, the choice of the person may have been something negative, so there was the with the purpose of overcoming that battle and that assigned that test. Or, the, 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 the aliyah, the elevation, will be without any setbacks at all. Like the difference between Yerushalmi and Bavli. That one comes through a question, you come to refine through a question that comes from the negative side and you come to clarify. Or initially you have the, the aliyah without that setback, as he says. Now, where there's a moshal that the Tzemach Sadek brings, it's actually from the Alter Rebbe, a very powerful moshal, that some neshamas are like an example given when they come to this world, is like fighting a battle. And when you're fighting a battle with the opposite side, we know every battle, like he says in Tanya, is el umazeh. There's the Kedusha Dika side, the holy side, and there's the negative side. And there's the battle. Sometimes one of the taxisim al one of the methods, strategies in battle, is in order to draw out the enemy, you send someone out to the open field so the enemy will shoot at him or attack him. That really is to draw the enemy out and then you can conquer them. And he explains some neshamas, that's what they go through. Now the Rebbe is hinting that about his brother that that was one of his, that was what he went through, that was a person like that, perhaps, but he definitely seichens it and he definitely speaks about the b'chir of a person. So the Rebbe is not mincing words here. He makes it clear, you could see from this, that he was talking about his, that Rabbi Yisrael had his challenges. But ultimately, all is toward Aliyah, and just a question of how quickly, and the one has to go through that type of experience. Now, this is not a justification or an explanation. I just read it as it is. You can look it up yourself. Again, page 363 in the Kutisichas, It looks like a Rishima, but I think recall hearing that the Rebbe actually said this. Rishima Hashemim. The Rebbe actually spoke about this after the Shiva. And I guess afterwards the Rebbe then edited and you could see from the footnotes that a lot was added. Okay. 
Bottom line, in all the Rebbe Sichas, he speaks about the name Yisrael Arieleib, that it's all about transforming the challenges of life into an asset. Both in the name Yisrael, Sarisa Melekim Vanoshim, and Arieleib, which an Arie on one hand is a very powerful animal and not a kosher animal, but yet it's one of the one of the four levels of the Markovan. So it's about transforming the negative into positive, very similar to the Rishima here, that everybody will go through life, everybody. And this is a lesson we learn. Everyone will have their setbacks. It's part of existence. That there's the that between Yesh Yesh, there's an Ayin Be'emtza. Between every elevation, there will be some form of setback in order to get to a greater place. It's like what Chassidus gives the example actually around Lag Ba'emr. When you want to shoot an bow and arrow, you have to draw back. The further you draw back, the farther you can shoot. And we have to therefore understand that the setback is not a setback. It's a stepping stone and part of the process of aliyah, both collectively in the world and individually, each one of us. The khir of a person is to determine how quickly that aliyah will happen, that elevation, and whether it will go through some negative experience or it will initially be a setback, but not necessarily in the Umazen, something negative, opposite of Gdusha. So the lesson is very clear. A lesson in general of Chassidus, that every concealment is in order to bring a greater revelation. And one of the Chidushim of the Rebbe is that it becomes part of the revelation, part of the elevation. However, it's hard to see. When you're looking at this moment, you see the moment. But when you look at the big picture, you come to understand that that's the ultimate purpose. So the lesson is clear to each one of us, and we are inspired in a day like this, especially that the Rebbe spoke about it a number of times, to learn the proper lessons. And I mention again, to go into the details of his personal life. One, first of all, we don't know the details. We don't know what a person goes through, especially a person of that caliber. And above all, as I said, our goal is to learn from it and use this day to strengthen our commitment to everything that Rebbe stands for and everything of Teir Mitzvahs and Yiddishkeit, and even when there is a setback, to see it as an opening to get to greater places, to reach higher places. Regarding the question that was asked, I don't know what, what the, the, Rebbe's, the, the, the Rebbe's efforts are connected to his brother. I think the Rebbe's efforts are connected to what the Rebbe as a leader saw was necessary. Was it also inspired by different experiences the Rebbe went through in life? Very likely. But again, that would be speculation unless the Rebbe himself addressed it. And as I said about leaving, we don't know about leaving. Nobody leaves. God is always there with us. Chabad is always part of a person's life, someone who grew up with Chabad. It's not a, God forbid, a political party. It's a, a movement, a Torah movement, one that is, helps every human being become the best they can possibly be. And they talk about Rabbi Yisrael, Arielib's understanding of Chassidus and the Kishmak people had to bring with him over the years. And, uh, and there were those that maintained contact with him when he was in Eretz Yisrael, and then in England. Unfortunately, it was before his 46th birthday that he passed away, a young man. And we honor him as a brother of the Rebbe, and for his own right. Uh, and um, I remember uh, seeing, we see there's a video where Professor Rosenblum, a mathematician, goes over to the Rebbe between Sichas by Fabring, and the Rebbe asks him, a favor, he says, I want, I'd like to send you something, a mathematical, uh, uh, not a journal, a mathematical presentation, and would you, would, you, would you please look it over and prepare it for publication? 
Now, the Rebbe says, I don't want to say who it is because I don't want to influence you. But then the Rebbe does say, he says, it's his brother. And uh, Professor Rosenblum asked the Rebbe, are there sources there? Are there? In other words, does he cross-reference? Does he cite citations? The Rebbe says he was, he was, a, he was, a, uh, was a zealot in his independence, and which meant that he was very, he would write an idea, the Rebbe says, and not necessarily write any sources. Later, perhaps he would add some sources. So ultimately it was published in a little booklet, a mathematical equation of his, a mathematical uh, paper, I would say, that Rabbi Sol Arileb wrote. And the Rebbe said, it's dear to me because it's, it's the only thing that remains from my brother that he wrote. I believe those are the Rebbe's words. So it's interesting just as, a, as an anecdote connected to Yud Gimel Ear. But the zealots in his independence, in his, like a fiercely independent person, which of course tells you a lot about Schneerson, the Rebbe's brother, and uh, maybe we can learn lessons from that about independence and using it, directing it towards creating a revolution, a spiritual revolution to finally bring the Gula. As I mentioned, from Yud Gimliyeh we move into Pesach Sheni, and Pesach Sheni has a similar story. What's the story of Pesach Sheni? Lomenigora. The Jewish, the Jews had come out a month earlier from Mitzrayim. They were told to bring a carbon Pesach, but there were some that couldn't bring it. So Pasha Baalesha, they come to the mission, they say, Lomenigora, why should we be worse? Why should we suffer? And not be able to, why should we be neglected and not be able to, uh, be, uh, not be able to bring the carbon Pesach? So from that, Moshe goes to Hashem. Hashem gives a mitzvah. That if someone would be bederech tome, or bederech recheke, someone is impure, they can't bring korban Pesach on Pesach, or bederech recheke, meaning distant from the Beis Amigdash. So here's the opportunity to fill in and bring a Pesach Sheni. That's what Pesach Sheni, a korban Pesach, in place of what the one that was missed. And the Friedrich Rebbe says, from this we learn, no matter what happens, even if a person was contaminated in some way, was polluted by behavior or by experiences in life, or was distant, and distant can mean physically distant, can mean spiritually distant. There's no such thing as being lost, God forbid. Nothing is ever lost. There's always another opportunity. It's interesting, it's almost word for word the theme we just discussed in Yud Gimel Ir. And the lesson is very clear for all of us. It's one of the hardest challenges. Dealing with people, you know, people made mistakes, advertently, inadvertently, and we are, feel sometimes that deep guilt. We sometimes even feel we're damaged, damaged goods. We feel, well, I can't turn back, I made a big mistake. Or something bad had happened to me. Regardless whether the person's choice or was done to the person. And we feel trapped as victims of circumstances. This is one of the most common and most challenging challenges of all challenges. Because even if you have an approach, but the past haunts us, comes the statement, Pesach Sheni. The person cries out and says, Why should I be lacking? Why should I be deficient? Why should I be deprived? And so the answer is, you're not. Nothing gets lost. There's always a way back. There's always an opportunity. Yes, you may have to find another pathway. You have to be creative. You have to learn from what happened. But there's no such thing as a person that's lost. 
It sounds simple, but we have to emotionally, emotionally internalize that message. And it can change so much in life. Because when you believe in that, and you stand strong holding on to that message from the Friedrich Rebbe and the Rabbeim and Torah in general, it gives the strength and the courage and the fortitude to forge ahead. Pesach Sheni. And then we come to Lag Boimer. Lag Boimer is, of course, two things happen like Boimer that the Rebbe always talks about. Was number one was the, the end of the Magefa, the pandemic or epidemic of the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva who died during this period because they didn't show honor to one another. And the second thing is the Yemi Lula, the Yemi Stalkus of the Rajbi. Yem Simchase of the Rajbi. The day he passed away and the day that's his celebration and joy as he requested, celebrate on this day. And ever since, like Bamer has become celebration. The Rebbe brought it to a whole other level with making like Bamer parades and continuing the custom to getting inspiring children. So like Bamer has become a, a day in Israel for sure, pilgrimages to Miran, the, the burial place, the oil of the Rajbi, but all over the world. Now, what exactly is like Bamer in that context? And what is the connection between two, these two things? So Le Nogu Kovitz of course, is a negative. The opposite of the statement that their own teacher made, Rabbi Akiva, that loving another is a fundamental principle of Teda. And Ashbi was one of the students, actually, of Rabbi Akiva that did survive because he didn't behave in that fashion. As the Zayar brings, that we love is what we are, we all are standing on and dependent on. So it teaches us that the students of Rabbi Akiva, how could they come to that point where they didn't respect each other? It wasn't because of their flaw, it was because of their greatness. They were so great that they couldn't tolerate the other. So sometimes you don't tolerate someone because you're jealous or because you're, you're petty. But sometimes your light is so great and you don't know how to harness it that it's hard to therefore work with another. Each one had their own brilliance. So this explains it's like the energies are too intense and the kalim are too fragile. So there's a shattering. That's not justifying it. It's just explaining it. So the kavana is not to eliminate the great light that each person has, the great power, but to learn how to complement each other. Rajbi joined all the worlds together, the revealed Torah, the hidden Torah. And also in the Shamas, the revealed part of the soul and the hidden part of the soul. It was one of the unique things of Rajbi, Abshimim Bayechoi. And as such, he was able to create a unity. Chassidus explains that when you have in Tanya, Perik Lamed Beis, Perik Lev, Love, Lamed Beis, about it's about understanding that we're all part of one bigger picture. So subtly, that all begins in Teda. When you see that Teda, the Neshama and Guf of Teda are one. The soul of Teda, which is Primisat Teda, and the body of Teda, which is Nigla the Teda, the revealed part, 
So that also reveals in the human being that the soul and body come one. As he says in Tanya, that's the only way you reach Avis Yisrael, when you recognize that the soul is primary. When a person makes his body Iker, primary, and his soul secondary, that creates separation. And separation ultimately leads to, can lead to divisiveness. So Rashbi, who was a connector in that sense between soul and body, also connected the Jewish people together and all human beings together in a show of grand unity. And Dafka when in Svirasayim, in a time which is a sad time, which is why we don't do weddings and celebrations throughout Svira, because of the passing of the 24,000 students. But the point is to elevate it, and that's why like Be'emer is an elevation in that, in that period of time, where you, have that, where you had that divisiveness, is to show a deeper unity and deeper connection. So the lesson to us is very clear. It's about Avis and Agdus Yisrael. In practical terms, in our own personal homes, in our lives, anyone we come in contact with. To stay away from anything that's divisive. To definitely not talk about it. To educate our children that we are here to bring light, to bring unity. Which of course is also the root of bringing the Geula because Sinas Chinam, which was, which was Sinas Chinam, hatred for one another without any basis, was the root of why the temple was destroyed, the Beis Amidish was destroyed. So what's the Tikkun? Avas Chinam, unconditional love. Doesn't have to have a condition, doesn't have to have a reason, just like the hate didn't have a reason. So the lesson is very clear in that context. Okay. There was a, one question I do want to answer. Someone asked, the Zohar, how do we know that the Zohar was written by Rajbi? That was one question that was asked. And the answer is very straightforward. How do we know that anything was anything? The Gemara, how do we know that Hanoim and Amirayim taught it? So we have a body called Tereshe Balpeh that first was oral for many years until the Rabbi Yehuda Nossi and his colleagues determined to write it down and became Mishnah. And then based on that, the Gemara, Tanoim Namaroim, one of the Tanoim was Rajbi. Just as there were things that were taught in the Nigla Duteira, there were things taught Primis Atera. Rajbi had his students. So the Zoyer tells us in the Idra Zuta, which is in Zoyer Hazinu, in volume three, the story of Rajbi's Histalkus, it also talks about there how Rajbi, Rab Abba, his student, one of his students of the Idra, of the group that Rajbi had around him. Why it's called Idra Zutra? Because three of them had passed away from the Idra Rabba. Idra Rabba means the larger group, the larger gathering, the larger uh, assembly. That's Parshanose, Idra Rabba. And Idra Zutra is the three of them had passed away. Rabba was the one chosen by Rajbi to write down everything that he said. And that's how we know. They're secular scholars, because the Zayar was discovered later in the 15th century in different caves in Italy, in uh, Mantoba, and in um, Corona. I mean, there were two different places um, that, uh, that they found. Krimuna, I'm sorry. Tfus Krimuna. Krimuna, and uh, I confused it. It's a tikkun for Corona. Uh, Krimuna and Mantoba. 
So the Zer was discovered then. And it was first there was a confusion. The Chidor writes in Shem and people didn't know what these writings were until they found scholars who said, this is the famous Zaya that they, everyone knew Balpeh was passed on. And those, that, those scholars understood right away what this treasure was. So people confused and thought since it was discovered then, maybe it was written then. It wasn't written then. These were written down from previous generations. So Moshe de Leon was involved in getting it published and publicizing it for the first time. But these are writings that go back to the Rajbi, as I said. Those that know primis ate, knew primis ate, and know primis ate, they saw in it things that they had already received generations before. And that's, and that's the basis of about Zoyar connecting to the Rajbi. Baha'i Sifrit Bilach, and this, with this Sefer, the Jews will be redeemed from Golis, as the Alter Rebbe cites from Rai Mehemner in Gerus Akeja Simech Havov 26 in Tanya. Okay, let me just give you a few little cross-referencing. As I mentioned, chassidahsupply.com is our website where you can find all previous episodes as well as a place, a forum, where you can submit any question you're interested in. And you can also read all the essays, the, cre- the, the, the written essays and the creative pro- submissions in the My Life Chassidah Supplied Annual Contest. So let me cross-reference you. Pesach Sheni Lag I spoke about in episode 17, 66, 116, 162, 211, 261, 307 through 309. The Gimel I already mentioned. And finally, we talk about Pashas Emoir. So Pashas Emoir is uh, this week and coming to Shabbos. I spoke about this in episodes 115, 161, 211, 260, and 307. So since there are two questions that did come in about the Pasha, let me address it through that angle. What was the purpose of the Lechem Aponim? So we know in Pasha Tetzava, we already told about the Lechem Aponim, that, uh, that one of the Kalim in the Mishkan was to build a Shulchan, a table of gold. And Lechem Aponim, there was baked a particular type of matzah that remained fresh through the week, and every week it was replaced, and the kehanim were given to eat from that lechem upon him. <clears throat> so this question is, what was the purpose of the lechem upon him? Why was it left out on the table all week? Wouldn't that be inviting ants and insects to enter the Beis Amigdash, which would be extremely disrespectful? <clears throat> so the English translation usually for lechem upon him is showbread. But ponim is an interesting name, lechem haponim. Some say it's because it was in the Kedish, inside the inner part of the Beis Amigdash, in the Mishkan, the Beis Amigdash, so that's what's called lechem haponim. Others explain lechem haponim because it had a primizdika element to them. And one of them was that it was not subject to, um, to rotting or decaying in any way. It was a miracle that the lechem stayed fresh throughout the entire week. The power of the Beis Amigdash. So the question you're asking was the exact opposite. It was meant, why things decay? Because they're subject to the elements. So bacteria and other negative forces come to eat off of it. Something that is pure Kedusha and holiness does not allow anything from the negative to come to glean energy from it or wean energy from it. Think of a human being. When a human being is alive, Baruch Hashem, 
So we avoid certain things will never come attack a human being. Yes, there's infections and other things. But what happens upon Misa, after 120 years, upon passing, once the soul is no longer there, the body begins to decompose and we see what happens. Except by tzaddikim. Because the body is now not being protected by the neshama, the soul that gave it life. So if something maintains its connection to godliness, there's no room for something negative to come there. The Beis Amigdash had its inbuilt-in immunity system due to its holiness. Now, of course, we know, of course, that enemies of the people, the Jewish people, and came and destroyed and defiled the Beis Amigdash because of the sins. The protection of the Beis Amigdash was not there. And Rahman al-Islam, God forbid, we know what happened. But when the Beis Amigdash was active, and things were in a place where they should be. So they had, everything had its purity. So lechem aponim was the food of this bread that would not be subject to any decay. The pnim, the lechem aponim, the pnim affected its very, its very being of the bread itself. Now what was the purpose? So the different commentaries, the chinuch brings, as do others, that the purpose was that the main food of a person is represented by bread is to show that our blessings come from God and that God sustains us, that even though we make our efforts, but we should always recognize that sustenance comes from a higher place. That's the explanation given in the Chinuch and some other Mepharshim and commentaries. So, of course, that lesson is clear to each one of us. It's in recognizing. The Reb Marash says that Parnosa today is like the man. So even though the man was bred from heaven, not lechem aponim, lechem aponim was bred from earth, was made, was made a certain way, the Gemara tells us how exactly they baked the bread, but still it reminds us of that Hashem is the one that provides. Okay. So there's another question that came in about the very sad part at the end of Pashas Emer. talks about someone who cursed God's name and ultimately was put to death because of it. So here's what a person asks. At the end of Pasha Emer, someone pronounced the Tetragrammaton, which is the Shema Vayi, the Shema Mephedish, and was convicted of blasphemy and stoned to death. Why are we not allowed to say God's real name? When we say blessings throughout the day, the idea is to draw down spiritual energy from God into the physical world. If so, why, when saying blessings, do we refrain from saying Hashem's name? in an appropriate manner, at the correct time, instead substitute a Hebrew word meaning my Lord, my Master. In other words, we use the word Adnai. We don't use the word, we don't pronounce Yud Kevavka, we don't know how to pronounce it, but we don't pronounce it. Is it possible that when we pray, our prayers are unanswered because they were addressed wrong by calling out to the general term, my Lord, instead of actually pronouncing his real name? Another questioner asked similar, why is cursing God considered such a horrible sin that the punishment is the death penalty? Is God a thin-skinned crybaby that can't take any criticism? Okay. So, an excellent question. Let me broaden the question. The question, of course, is about Avedizar in general. Why does God really care that a person wants to be foolish and want to worship a stone or a tree or the sun or the moon? God's jealous, like you're asking, God is insecure. What's this other person wants to be foolish? What is it, why is it such a grave sin to the point it's one of the three sins, Yarek Val Yaver, 
you're supposed to die before you do that. Other sins says behem If it's danger to life, you can forego different avedas. But these three, one of them avedazar shvichasdam and giliarais. No, why is it such a grave sin? Second of the Ten Commandments. And the answer is, because it's not a small matter. It's not about Hashem. Mitzvahs were not given for God. They were given for us. For us to connect to godliness and to truth. When you replace truth with something else, it's much worse than not having the truth. If a person, for example, denies God's existence, whatever the reason, a person can make a mistake, a person can be distracted, can, can uh, be focused on their personal life. So as bad as that may be, but it's not replacing it. When a person says, I have now another God, and it's a God that is created in my image, instead of me being created in God's image, it's a God that I can relate to. As the Arambam explains, a very powerful way in the beginning of Hilchas Avedizara, the laws of idolatry in Mishnah Teirah, in Yad HaChazakeh, what does he say there? That how do people get to idolatry? There was a God that created the world. Odom and Chava and their children recognized it. But then they said they need something tangible. They need something they can relate to. So they looked up at the stars at heaven. Ah, these are God's stars. They didn't replace God. They said these are God's stars. I can identify with it. Then the stars are also too distant. So let's create, build something down on earth or have a tree or a stone that represents this and this star. So initially it was seen as Kigazim Biyad HaChetzev. It's like these stars and everything relating to them or like an axe in the hand of the axeman. That God is running the world, but he's doing it through these stars. But as they became more comfortable with things that they could see tangibly, and then on earth, they found symbols of that. And then there are others that came and said, let's build a little sanctuary around that tree or stone or one that represents this star or that star or the sun or the moon. That's what Akum means. Serving the stars and the celestial bodies. So then what happened was the move came, you know, this is what I relate to. God? I don't know if there's a God or the God is maybe removed from us. The different ways you can explain it. But they replaced God with something that they could relate to. So it defeats the whole purpose of a God. God is about something beyond you. And here you created a God on your terms. The whole point of God is that something that created us, not we create God, that fits our comfort zone. So once a person introduces that into their lives, then where do you go from there? It ultimately becomes a form of self-worship, an extension of self. So by extension, now let's move it to what the cursing God. No, it's not about God. It's about not respecting, and even worse, defiling or desecrating the 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 truth of something. Once you do that, in a sense, you cut off your lifeline. Because you're not just saying, okay, I'm not doing what God wants me to do. I'm challenging, and more than that, I'm desecrating and defiling and cursing the very essence of what life and existence is about. So most of us, however, don't think about it because we think, you know, what's the big thing? I said something. People use all the time language. It's because we're not careful and we're somewhat flippant and frivolous with our language. The Torah is expecting the most of us and wants us to know your words matter. 
Even though you say, say it just as a matter of expression, people say all kinds of words that, are, that, that, that may defile God's name. But when you really think about it, it's not about the name, it's about what it represents. So that's why the Torah is saying, when you cut yourself off, when you're not just, not, you're not just ignoring, but you're defiling, you're desecrating, you're cursing, that has significance. You've cut yourself off from the source of your life. So in the time when there was the death penalty, and even that required all kinds of conditions, it wasn't so simple, people didn't just were killed all the time. It was very rare. It needs many conditions, and most conditions could not be met. But there is the concept, at least, to understand that you're, talking, you're tampering with your very life. You're like saying, your lifeline that gives you oxygen, you're saying, you know, you curse it. So you cut yourself off from that lifeline, what, you, what is the result? It's cause and effect. That's what the Torah is coming to teach us. So it's both about understanding what you're addressing here, the God, the source of life, your life, and secondly, every word matters. Every word you utter matters. It's not just words that we say. So we have lessons that we can learn from this. As far as why we don't say the Shema Mephedish today, Shema Mephedish is invoking the highest levels of divine revelation. When the Beis Amigdash stood and the environment was right and it was not polluted, as I mentioned earlier. So the Kayin Gadl was the holiest person among all the people on the holiest day, Yom Kippur, in the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, went in and said the Shema Mephedish. So it was not something that was just done all the time. Today, that secret of... It's not just to pronounce it. Like someone can figure out the formula, how to say it, you can say it. It's not that way. The reason we don't say it is not because... The reason we don't know the formula is because we're not kalim to know it. So it's not like someone can trick. It's like someone say, give me the code and I'll get in. Now, if, even if you were given the code, you wouldn't get in. First of all, you wouldn't know how to read the code. Secondly, it's about you're not ready, you're not worthy of going in. You're not prepared. That's why we have, it says, that today, the Shema Mefei, Shema Vai, Nikra. The way it's written is not the way we pronounce it. That the written will be like this, the pronounced, the spoken. So on a revealed level, which is the spoken today, cannot capture that which is written, which is more hidden. As actually we discussed back Yudshvat time, in the chapter 11 of Bosilagani, from Tavshin Yud, this year corresponds to chapter 11, where he discussed this idea in the Rebbe's Maimorim of 1961, primarily and also 1981, but primarily Tavshin Chafalov, this topic, how there's a lack of alignment between what is spoken and what was written. And that's why we are not able to say it. And God forbid to say that our prayers are not answered. This is what God says today. This is the way we make a bracha. It's not a bracha vatala, God forbid. It's a real blessing and a real prayer, and that has an effect. So regarding your second question, no, it's not because we do not pronounce. When we will be able to pronounce, when the world will be ready for us to be able to pronounce it, then we'll pronounce it. So it's like when you know how to, you love someone deeply, you have to be in a state where you can say that expression of that love. Today we have a certain way of expressing it. When Mashiach comes, the third base Amidus will be rebuilt. Then we'll be able to pronounce it in the fullest sense. There'll be a complete seamlessness 
between the expression and between what's written. Okay. So we covered that. Now, I have a lot of follow-up continuing from Chavches Nissen a few weeks ago. It was 30 years. So there were many questions that were still about Mashiach, and I said I would cover every week a few. So I'm going to do that now. Now. Um, Just cover a few more, and every week we'll go through it. Okay. So first of all, Chav Ches Nissen itself. Chav Ches Nissen, of course, we always quote the Baal Shem Tov's answer to Mashiach, Mashiach's answer to the Baal Shem Tov. When are you going to come? So here someone writes, the part of the Ketover letter that no one wants to address seems to be, Ketover is talking about it. Abgershin Ketover was the Baal Shem Tov's brother-in-law. The Baal Shem Tov wrote this letter about his Ali and Rosh Hashanah, Tov Kuf Zayin, where he went up and to the Hechel, to the to the to the, the area where Mashiach was, the, and that's when Mashiach told him So in this letter to Abgershin Ketover, Gershin Ber Ketover, the 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 said that Mashiach answered, So this individual is writing, there's another part to the letter that people don't address. Quote, in English translated, after it says, so that others too will be able to perform mystical unifications and a sense of the soul like you. Then all the evil clippers will be destroyed and it will be a time of grace and salvation. So the person continues to write, end, end quote, the standard answer, why this is not addressed, we only talk about the first half of the statement, is when we do a mitzvah, we make such a unification. The text clearly is referring to someone to something else, to the mystical unifications and a sense of the soul, like those of the Baal Shem Tov, one of which is the subject of the letter, that the Baal Shem Tov went up to Shemaim, to the Hechel of the Baal Mashiach. A daunting challenge, but it cannot be ignored. Have I missed something? So yes, this question has been asked. There's actually a letter from the Rebbe about it. The Rebbe does not necessarily fully answer the question, he, but he addresses the question and, and, and says clearly that the second half, the Baal Shem Tov said, the Baal Shem Tov heard from Mashiach, and yet we still focus on Yefutza So the explanation that most people have in this issue is this that, correct, what you're saying is correct. Yeshua is what you should be doing. Your job is to spread the wellsprings, to spread chassidus outward. What will happen when you do that, the Mashiach continues, is that so that others will be able to perform mystical unifications. That will be a result of what we do. That doesn't mean that every person knows exactly how to do that. That's usually how this is explained. But regardless, since the Rabbeim do not bring the second half, you have to say that Yefutzimanesechachutza is the primary thing we should be doing. So I wouldn't say we're ignoring it. It's just the bottom line is, this is something that's in our hands to do. When a person learns chassidus and spreads chassidus, that's what they do. They're being miyach and yechudim. Now what about a sense of the soul? Okay. 
on the highest level, when a person does reach a level of deeper chassidus, perhaps they have an aliyah. Is it on the level of the Baal Shem Tov? Was Mashiach saying to the Baal Shem Tov, hey, we need everybody to be like you, like a Baal Shem Tov? Then is that something even doable? Yafutz Manasechachutz, however, is doable. So however you explain the second half, whether it's a result of what we do, whether it will ultimately happen when we spread your futsa properly, the point is the focus is still in your futsa Now, is this a completely full answer from the Rebbe's letter? Since the Rebbe doesn't really answer it, he just addresses it, it seems like, okay, you may have a question. But remember, we can't let a question affect our work. And, um, and therefore, the spreading of chassidus and learning of chassidus is fundamental to what we do, and we continue to do it, and it's in our power. And you go to the Sikh of Chav Ches Nisan, the Rebbe Taka says that. He says that this is what Tut Kent, and then later in the Sikhs afterwards, the weeks afterwards, explained learning in Yoni Gula Mashiach, and nowhere are we ever asked to do something that's not in our capacity. That's how I would explain it, and I may be looking to it some more if I have anything more that I could find, but that's the basic response to this. Now, continuing on from there, so people ask questions, so when Mashiach comes, will evil be eradicated from the world? When Mashiach comes? Yeah. And if so, then what if any challenges will there be in the Messianic era? Will there still be crime in the world? Will everyone automatically behave properly? Will life be a utopia with no daily struggles or will there still be physical challenges? And a few other questions which I'll mention in a moment after I cover this. So we're told there's two stages. I mentioned the letter from the Rebbe, it's printed in, in Nigris Kedish, volume two, which comes from Chuvah Sibyurim, where the Rebbe explains the whole Inya of Tchis HaMesim, so it's a very powerful introduction. And he explains three stages in history and two stages in Mashiach. First stage is Elam Haz as we know it, where there's a battle between good and evil, both collectively and individually, Yetzir Tev, Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination, the positive inclination. Then comes the stage of Yemesa Mashiach, where the battle is over, but there'll still be good and evil. And then comes the stage, that God says, I will remove the spirit of polluted spirit from the world, it will no longer be. There no longer will be evil and destruction. So there's that what we can do in that regard, which is what we're doing. We see we've made the world a more peaceful place. The world is far more peaceful and less crime, less war than it ever was. It doesn't mean there isn't, it's perfect. And it doesn't mean there can't possibly be challenges. We see them all the time. But the main thing is, when Hashem removes it all. So that will be the difference, two stages. Now, you could say, so once there's no Ruach HaTum, what they're left to do? So the Alter Rebbe answers this question, Simon Chavav and Nagaras HaKedosh. He speaks about this, that when there's no Tevara, what we'll be doing is in the Yachid Yechudim, we're constantly growing in Kedusha itself, from good to better and better and better, which is ain't Sof, without an end. So there'll be plenty of work to be done. Except then it won't be dealing with the negative to the positive, from evil to good. In goodness itself, there's infinite levels. And that will be the work we do then.
So we can't say there'll be physical challenges. There won't be illness. There won't be crime. There'll no longer be evil. There'll no longer be destruction. But the challenge then will be the challenge from going to one level in holiness, in positivity, to a higher level, which sometimes can be even more challenging. Remember, before Chetet Tzadas, even though the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil was there, but since they didn't taste it, it wasn't existing in the world yet, evil. So they could have avoided Their avoider was to avoid it. And they would have continued on had they not eaten from the tree of knowledge. They would have had a void of the Lashamra, but it would have been all in bringing more divine light and more divine light on deeper levels and deeper levels. When Mashiach comes, what will be of Shlichus? When Mashiach is already here. All the Yidin will do tshuva, then what will be our role? Another question will there be free will? So all this is answered by what I said before. There'll definitely be shlichus. There'll be yafutzah minasach chutzah. Learning chsidis, learning teira, will also be necessary. Even though it says, lo you no longer will need one person to teach another. Kikulim yedu esi, because all will know, esi me, God, etzim. The essence of the divine, limiktan v'agdelam. But it says, miktan v'agdelam, from young to old. So there'll be learning, we won't be needed because everyone will have that connection. But growth will continue to happen. So today you could have an ignorance and you don't have direct connection, so you need a teacher. The role of the teacher then is not to give you the connection. The role of the teacher is to help you grow in your connection, to grow to higher levels and higher levels. The shlichus, anyone that did shlichus today will definitely continue doing shlichus. But it won't be teaching people who don't know. It will be people who are steeped in chassidus. We will then remember, learning chassidus today is only it's only a taste, like an appetizer that we eat before Shabbos from the food of Shabbos. Then will be the full-blown meal. And that's where we'll all grow together and we'll need each other. So even when in will make tshuva. Interestingly, it says, La that Tzadikim will do tshuva when Mashiach comes, so Tzadikim also need to do tshuva. Why? Based on this principle. It's not about from rat to good, it's from good to better, to reach higher levels of the divine. That comes only when you return to deeper levels, that even a Tzadik can also, and should also, grow in that fashion. And therefore, there'll be free will. Well, free will doesn't always mean between good and evil. Free will is also that you freely, without any imposition, connect to what your essence really is. So in that sense, yes, it will be there. Okay, so we covered some Mashiach things. Let me cover a few other timely matters. Someone wrote a question about this latest, um, the Minnesota verdict. In relation to the Minnesota court's guilty verdict of Officer Chauvin, for killing Mr. Floyd by purposely keeping his knee on his neck for nine minutes? Are there any instances in the Tanakh where a person of authority, such as a soldier, abused his authority and killed someone unjustly? What recourse does the Torah provide for justice in such a case? Has the Rebbe ever made any public statements about government officials who unjustly abuse their authority? Someone else writes, while we all witnessed the behavior of the officer 
which clearly was more than inappropriate. How much of politics is affecting, did affect and is affecting our approach to this whole story? So let me begin with the first question. There is only one, there, everybody is subject to the same law in the Torah. The fact that somebody is in a position of authority, on the contrary, makes him even more responsible because he has that power. So there's no one above the law. And therefore, this Torah law is for every situation. Even when the shaft and Veshetan make a mistake, there's laws of how you deal with it. So that's a very short and basic answer. Obviously, constitutional secular law is not exactly like Torah law. The Torah law has its own way of dealing with things, but a lot of it is based on that Torah law, and a lot of it is also common sense. A no person is allowed to kill someone else, period. Whether it's a policeman, a shefet, a shetan, a judge, and so on. Moshe Rebbeinu is not allowed to kill someone else. There's a tater for this, and we have to all follow the tater's guidelines. So no one's above the law. That's very clear to determine. Regarding this situation, and it is complicated, because on one hand, nobody can condone when you see, especially that video. On the other hand, have people exploited it for their own purposes? Of course they have. But you don't want to say that, well, not because of politically correct issues, because as soon as you say that, people say, oh, so you're trying to dismiss the, the discrimination against blacks, the, the murder here that happened here. No. Intelligent people can speak about both things without one compromising the other. That every individual is subject to law and order, including the officer involved. We all agree. I'm speaking now from the perspective of Torah and Chassidus. But at the same time, why can't we talk about how people exploit? Like, if that's the case... Why don't you show equal treatment, even if it's a situation where you're not so politically, politically advantageous to you? And that does not take away. I want to say it again. Because as soon as you say something that's political, people say, ah, so in other words, you want, Floyd should have been killed because you're a white supremacist. Absolutely not what's being said here. It's two different subjects that need to be addressed separately, like many, many things we have been exposed in the past few years or in general, for those that are wise, how many decisions are made based on morality or based on politics? And do people use morality, moral issues for their political agenda? Of course they do. If we were an open society in the sense where journalists were honest and they really spoke about it, they would talk about it all without minimizing one or the other. It's difficult to do because I am sure, even what I'm saying now, I see can be misconstrued by some that were trying to read into what I said. And I absolutely don't have any hidden agendas here. I'm telling you exactly as I understand it. Which leads me, finally, to someone writing, Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I don't want to come across as offensive. However, I listened to your show. It's talking about several, this is a while back, probably a few months ago. And for the last few months, every time there's some controversy in Washington with elections, with elections or about the virus, may no Jew know from it, a mask wearing or not wearing, and all kinds of conspiracy theories about the vaccine, etc. In every one of these above-mentioned cases, you get very involved in it. And you talk about it for many weeks. I mean, Rab Simon, when are you going to grow up? Do you really think that uh, think it's Elam Gailam? People will figure it out. And for the people who send these questions, I'll tell them to get a life. Let them follow the news a little. Spend less Less, less, spend more, less, 
spend more time on learning Nigla Chsidis, doing Afatsa Sayadus, Afatsa Samiras, Afatsa Satera, Afatsa Sheva Mrs. Bleneach, and help another Yid Begashmis. Really, it's time for everybody to grow up. Mesayim and Betev. Well, if you talk about a condescending note, please do me a favor. The second half, we all agree with. And that's the whole purpose of my life, Chsidis Applied. And for you not to acknowledge that, I'm not insulted, to be honest. That's why I read it. Um, to you not to acknowledge that shows pretty clearly that the Elam is not Galem, and it's clearly, you have some agenda, I don't know what it is exactly. But I would suggest, why don't you start your program and start teaching Chsidis technology and do exactly what you're telling uh, others to do. Regarding the first half, um, look, these are realities that are happening on, in, in our times. It's important to address from a Teir and a Chassidus point of view without any agendas. As I said, I don't need to respond to things that I think are uh, ridiculous. But uh, as I said, we all can agree that we should be learning Nigla and Chassidus. And Halavai people shouldn't be knowing of all this news. But since we do, questions will come in. And I respect that. And you should respect it too. And I hope you're listening to this. And uh, you're not the only grown-up, let's put it this way. Okay? Or maybe the only one that maybe you also need to grow up in your style, but I have no problem reading it and uh, welcome all types of questions. And God bless you. Okay. With that, let me do the chassidus question, then let me do the final, the essays. Okay. The chassidus question is this. What is the connection between Lag Ba'im and, and Hoyt Shebahoyd? So we know Lag Ba'im is Hoyt Shebahoyd in the Sphiris. When you count the Sphiris the other way, it's actually Tiferes Shebet Tiferes. So Chassidus explains in the Maimorim of Lag Ba'imer, Hoyd is ultimately, one of its meanings is Hoydah, acknowledgement. Like Moida'ani, Moidim, Yehuda, Hoydu. It's a form of Bittl. Hoyd is Bittl within Bittl. Rajbi Kolinyone was Bittl. Bechat Katiris Katarna, he said, the day of Lag Ba'imer, when his Neshama went up. With one bind, I get bound to God. It was a total absorption and total sublimation of Rajbi into his source. And in his lifetime, Mampne Odin Do Rajbi, Mampne Odin Hashem, the Yerushalmi says, who is the, the face of, of Mampne Odin Hashem, the face of God our Master, Rajbi. How could you say such a thing about a person? Because it wasn't about him. Well, he was a reflection of the divine. That's called utter bittel. So Lag Ba'emer represents bittel b'mitzis of a, of a person like Rajbi. That type of bittel is what we learn from. The bittel Rajbi had Nuniyama he's compared to, like the fish in the sea that are completely covered up by their source. So Heisha Behed represents utter bittel, and that's the uniqueness of the day of Lag Ba'emer, the bittel of Rajbi, Talukus, as an example for each one of us. Okay. In our own level, because we're not on that level, but on our own level. So it also says that by Rajbi, in the like Rajbi, the Golis Khurban didn't happen, even though he lived after the destruction of the temple, because he was in that state of Bittl. Of course there was a Golis. Of course Tishabov was Tishabov for him. But his being was a Gu'uladik state, due to his great selfness. So, so Bittl allows us to experience something that's beyond ourselves, because we're channeling and becoming a seamless channel of something beyond us, in this case, godliness. Okay. 
So we're doing four tracks of the Essays 2020, My Life Chassidus Applied Annual Essay and uh, Creative Contest. So let me quickly go through that. Not quickly in any way, minimizing what the, the great contributions of these writers and presenters. But we do the essay in English, Marriage Demystified by the Mystics, Sarah Sobel, age 34, a mother, relationship coach in Brooklyn, New York. Very nicely done essay, talking about the challenges in marriage, but using Kabbalah and Chassidus and the Sphidus of the roles of men and women and how to interact. I think it would be well, 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 deserve, well, serve everyone well, whoever's in marriage, whoever's married, men or women, to read this essay, which can be seen at chassidusapply.com. Very well done. In the, again, the context of how to look at men and women with the eyes that Chassidus teaches us what levels we are, instead of just going by our own instincts and nature and aligning ourselves, we can learn to create far more harmony in our marriages. The creative track is Yeshus, the original people repellent. It's a sketch by Esther Rosen, age 39, mother, Brooklyn, New York, exactly as the name implies. <laughs> Nicely done, like, in a, like, in a, like a can of a repellent, but the repellent against Yeshus, with different messages about this. So check it out, again, at chassidusapply.com. The essay in Hebrew for men, Sikum inyan asimcha b'avedus Hashem al pichsidus tanya pedek chof vov. A summary of simcha joy in serving God, according to chassidus chapter 26 in Tanya by Aaron Noyach Freeman, Freeman, student in Yerushalayim, Israel. A very well presented summation of the themes there about Simcha and all the different aspects that the Alter Rebbe teaches us of how to achieve joy. And finally, the women essay in Hebrew, Kan Va'achshav Simcha Kushvili, educator in Lud, Israel, focusing again on Pichsidis, not to look in the past or look in the future, but how to right now, in the here and now, serve God and focus and being able to doing what you're asked to do, based on Tanya and other places in Chassidus. The two Hebrew essays can be seen at diraloi.org, D-I-R-A-L-O.org. And with that, we conclude episode 352 of um, I Love Chassidus Applied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. It's always an honor and pleasure. Please submit your questions, continue to submit your questions at chassidusapplied.com. Should be a very simchadika uh, week, especially the conclusion like Ba'emir, Ashbi, a unifying week, a week where we transform even the darkest moments, even setbacks, into great assets and aliyas and elevations. And a week of the Gu'ula Hamitis Vashlema. Be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chasidis Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapply.com slash donate.